I was organized, I would have been up here a lot sooner. I was busy talking in the back trying to ignore Russ, but you know how it is. I am glad to be back. I've been gone way too long. I hope you uh, had a great time while I was gone. I'm very excited. I need to thank two quick people before uh, I get started. The first one is Tom, leading for Matt while he's gone for a couple weeks. If we could just thank Tom Hartung. He's doing a great job. And that is this fan club right over there. Uh, also, Justin did a fantastic job the two weeks that I was gone. If we could just thank him. He's an incredible preacher, an incredible guy. Um, and now, just as uh, we're about to get started, you're going to need a Bible to stay with us. So if you could raise your hand, we'll have the guys bring a Bible right to where you are. If you want to keep in with us, I will give you the page numbers as to where we're turning to. So if you're not familiar with Scripture, by all means, raise your hands. It uh, looks like Mr. Jeff Hawkinson is back there, and uh, Flavius is handing it out, and so is, uh, looks like, Dave Turner and John Lee. So we got everybody handing Bibles out to you today. Make sure you get your hands up for that. Also, if you could take out your handout sheet in your bulletin, we can get rolling today. I got all kinds of material for you. We only got about 45 minutes to crack through all of it. The intro and two chapters of the book of Judges, but we're going to be able to do it this morning. On your handout sheet, in your bulletin, grab that, take a look at it. On one side, it has an outline as to where we're going to be going. That outline is incomplete. I added more stuff to that. However, on the other side, I gave you a little map. Now, that is either to doodle in or say mean things about the person sitting next to you, or it is to actually do digging deeper and doing study in the Word of God. Now, I would love for you above that to write in your homework. If you like to do this kind of interactive, digging deeper stuff, here's your homework. Read Joshua chapter 23 and 24. Joshua chapter 23 and 24. It sets up beautifully where we're going to be going for the next 12 weeks. And as you will notice, today is part one of our Judges series. It's a 12-part series into a study of holiness and what it means when we begin to do things our own way and turn our backs on God and where that leads. And is that really what we want? Do we really want total and absolute freedom? Do we want a world that we create for ourselves? Do we want a society where everyone does whatever they think is right in their own eyes? Or do we truly need God involved in our lives as a king? Now, there are some amazing correlations between the book of Judges and our life. And speaking of those, we begin with a quote by Warren Wearsby, and he said this. The people of Israel owned all the land, but they didn't possess all of it, and therefore they couldn't enjoy all of it. The Jews could have enjoyed total victory. Instead, they settled for a compromise. Today's lesson is called The Cost of Compromise. Israel loses momentum, cutting corners. Before we begin any book, we have to ask the questions that basically lead to one central question is, why do we care? Why is this book in here? Is this something we need to read for ourselves or something we get to stick on a shelf and forget about? Is it merely a history book that tells you about land allotment or things like that? It is that, but it's far more. Let's begin by answering some of the basic questions. Who wrote the book of Judges? We have no idea. There you go. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to answer that one. If you say, I don't know, then you're good. 
All right. They believe now tradition says that it was Samuel, the prophet that wrote or compiled this book. Now, I don't know if that's true. It could be, could not be. It seems like everyone wants to attach a big dog to everything. I don't know. It could be just got, you know, Bob from somewhere else that kind of compiled it all. We have no idea. But we do know that it's not just one story that someone sat down and said, I want to tell you a story. What it appears to be is a compilation of oral history from all over the place, captured, written down, and then someone grabbed all the material, edited it, put in their comments on it, wrapped it up in a package, and suddenly we have the book of Judges. It's placed in the Bible right after Joshua, and indeed, it begins by saying after the death of Joshua, which is where Joshua leaves off. So it seems to even be placed in the right way. But the questions then become, when did it happen? And when was it written? Well, this book chronicles 330 years and a very significant portion of Israel's history. If you remember, we have where Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, was given a vision of a promised land. A lot of stuff happened in between there when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. We have these 12 tribes or 12 sons of Jacob that begin to mix around. Then all of a sudden we have this huge incident where Israel is in bondage to Egypt for 400 some odd years. When they're led out by Moses, this mighty deliverer that God empowered, as they march out of that, they wander in the desert. And due to their disobedience, they're not allowed to enter. That generation can't get in the promised land. And so... After that generation, it's handed from Moses to Joshua. He leads them in a mighty campaign. And then as he dies, he gives them directions on what to do next, how to settle the land. From that point all the way till uh, their first king, King Saul. They only had three major kings under the solid monarchy, and that was King, David, king Saul, King David, and King Solomon. From there, it broke down. But from the period of Joshua's death to the period of the very first king is 330 some odd years. That is the period of the judges. It is a dark time. It's almost as if it's a medieval period, the dark ages of Israel's past. They went into a vicious cycle. It went into a place where they got comfortable where they were at and they were great in their victory, but they forgot their vision. They forgot who God was. They forgot what God had done. They fell into compromise, fell into bondage. Eventually, they became oppressed by the peoples around them. They cried out to God in horror. God, why did you do this? God raised up a deliverer. They were set free and they walked in victory, but only for a time. They then lapsed and lost vision again and fell into sin and into captivity and cried out to God and he raised up a deliverer. And the cycle went on and on and on and on. And you say, what a bunch of stupid people. How in the world could they do that? Then you realize I'm talking about us. Is that not what we do? We're so great and we get so pumped up and we're at a service and things all begin to click and God is moving in our lives and oh my goodness, what is He doing here? And I had the greatest experience of worship in my life and wow, and we're on a high and then we go to work and then days get common and then it gets average and mundane and we lose vision and... We start realizing we're a little bit empty inside. We kind of crave what the world has and we go out there and get involved in it. And we compromise and 
Do you see the whole way it goes? I mean, is this foreign to you? If it is, you're not paying attention. This is what we do. This book is placed here not just because it's history. Not just because it shows who owns what land and why. But because it's teaching us and training us to not repeat the same mistakes. For if you forget the past, you may be, well, what? Doomed to repeat it, yes? It is here that we see a bunch of arguments about a failed theocracy. You've heard the word democracy a lot. Theocracy is ruled by God. And God didn't want them initially to have a king. He said, I want to be your king. I want all of you in community to be healthy and interact with me. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I want to walk with you. I want you to be with me. But it didn't go that way. Eventually, they cried out for a king. But much of this story will not be understood in terms of the 12 tribes of Israel until we look at a map. So if we could throw up a map there, Dan, I have a really neat map and I gave you a cheesy version. All right. So on the back of your page, you have a little black and white one. and I got a neat color one that is coming up anytime. I want to show you something real, real quick. I have a laser pointer, which makes me dangerous because I'm going to be pointing it all the time just because I can. There's my map. Now, this one is a fancy colored one. And so what you will notice is these are all different color coded to different tribes. They all have names. As you know, when Jacob, who was later changed his name by God to Israel, he had 12 sons. And they were names like Manasseh. And you'll notice Manasseh has two spots. There's East Manasseh and Manasseh right here. And there's Ephraim and there's Judah and Simeon and all the different boys are down here. You have enemy territories on the outside. Ammon, which is where the Ammonites come from. Or Moab, where the Moabites come from. This territory right here is the promised land. Now, before Moses died, he led them in victorious military campaign on the east side. Where you are in the world is this is the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the modern day Israel. As you go up, this is where Asia Minor is. And then as you go over, it dubs down into Greece. And so this is the Mediterranean Sea. No laughing. Thank you. I'm pointing over here. All right, here we go. Can you believe the sheer disrespect? <laughs> Happens all the time. Here we go. Right here is the Sea of Galilee. See that little guy? That's where Jesus, many, many years later, would spend the majority of his ministry. Of course, he would travel from here down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is right here. Back and forth. This is the area of basically the Holy Land. Now, they led in military campaign and everybody fought for these pieces that were handed out to the firstborn Reuben, then to Gad and Manasseh. However, they still had to take over this side. In between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee is one great barrier called the Jordan River. Those, that generation was not allowed to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land until Joshua got there. And when he marched through, the first campaign he did was in the city of Jericho, if you remember that story. Now then, when they got across, they drew up a map and they allotted all these portions to the different groups. When Joshua came in, he tore everything apart and they won big pieces of all these pieces of land. But it was not fully conquered. It was not fully settled. And there was a lot of work to be done. By the time Joshua dies, the whole land had not been settled. It had just been mapped out and had large conquered pieces. But as you might imagine, the Canaanites, who, which means all the people groups that lived in the promised land, they weren't going to leave very easy. They were going to fight for everything they had. 
And you can't root them out without battle for it. And so they led warfare inside. Now, Judges brings up many ethical questions. One of the major questions that you'll have to wrestle with is how is it okay for there to be a jihad or a holy war where God grabs a certain group of people and says, hey, have at it. I'm giving you this land and I don't care who's living in there. You've got to walk right in, slaughter everybody. Sometimes you wipe out men, women and children, demolish everything, wipe it out. And you know what? That's yours. Is that okay? Something you've got to wrestle with. And we're going to talk a little bit about why I think that happened and why it's okay. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But here's what I want you to know. Out of those tribes, out of the 12 boys that were on there, because I can't let go of my laser pointer, out of the 12 boys, there's two of them that are not on the map. One of them is Joseph, and the other one is Levi. You know why? Levi were the priests of the group. They were basically the roving pastors of the team. And they would handle all the things between God and the nation of Israel. And so they had a bunch of towns. They lived amongst all the people, and they were supported by all their brothers and their tribes. And there's no name for Joseph because now there's two spots empty. And Joseph had two sons. His oldest son's name was Manasseh. His youngest son was Ephraim, and they both got land. Do you see that? Ephraim's right here, and Manasseh got those two pieces. Now then, having said all of that, I want you to realize something. If you like maps and history, you think I'm brilliant right now. You are so excited and you think this is the best thing in the whole world. You're jotting down notes and everybody thinks you're a nerd. I get that. However, if you're interested in how it applies to your life, you are dead bored. Okay, <laughs> I get it. All right, but sometimes this stuff is necessary. So let me get right down to the heart of it about what we're talking about in our lives today. There is an extremely obvious application of the book of Judges to your life. And this is it. When they got in, God had promised them total victory. But through their compromise, they became enslaved. And God gave them all the deliverance they needed, but they kept walking away from him. Every time you read one of these stories, I want you to ask the question, where are you in the vicious cycle? Or are you on your way out? Of sin or on your way to victory or are you just getting off victory and you're a little bit bored, a little bit average, a little bit mediocre, slipping into sin, slipping into bondage. Where are you at in this cycle? Because they're no different than we are. And as you begin to read this book, you begin to see that God is calling out to them consistently. Will you return to me? I want you to walk in victory. Why do you consistently turn your back on me and do what you want to do and not listen to my leadership? This is a very applicable book. But here's the warning. Do not allegorize this book. That means don't take everything in the story and try to make it personal to you and how does it fit in my life and blah, 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 blah. Don't do that. Look at the general story. What is the lesson pulled out? And how can we apply that to our lives? Now then, look at the fill in the blank there in front of you. Here's what I want you to apply and not to leave without knowing. A little compromise today means a little bondage tomorrow. A little compromise today means a little bondage tomorrow. I have learned in recent months the art of dieting. Hate it. And I have also learned the incredible art of eating to make yourself feel better. 
Never learned that growing up. I had a really high metabolism, never really thought about it, never really cared. My metabolism absolutely bit the dust right about 23. I'm older than 23. So I've been battling it ever since. And what I found was is that I would say I want to diet and yet I would eat for comfort and a little bit compromised today meant I had to do an awful lot of work tomorrow to make sure that little stuff got out of my system. And it was a lot harder to get it out than to get it in. I'll tell you that. In the same way, we watch sin spin around us as so many times we feel empty inside and we crave so badly to grab one little thing. And we just say, it's just a little bit, it's not a big deal, it doesn't really matter, and everything else, and we crave, and we take it, and then all of a sudden we have our eyes open and say, oh my gosh, it's got a hole on my life, I better get that stuff out, and what do you find? Can't get it out. And you keep crying, God, why would you do this to me? You sure that's a question you should be asking? Would you turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 1. Judges, chapter 1, verse 1, page 169. In the Bibles that were handed to you, Judges chapter 1, verse 1, page 169. It was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. If you hit Ruth, you went too far. Side note, the book of Ruth occurs during this period. Not everything was chaos. Not everything was war. There's a neat little love story that's all tucked in there about how God takes care of people. And the book of Ruth is that love story. And it occurred in this 330-year period. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Last warning before we step in. The first two chapters are absolutely messed up. It is so hard to follow this stuff because it starts out with a phrase what? After the death of Joshua. Then all of a sudden, as you're reading, Joshua comes back alive. Okay? And you're saying, why is that? It jumps from the present tense to the past. Back to the present, back to the past. And it doesn't tell you when it's doing it. All right. So half the time you're going, so did they already conquer that? Why are they conquering it again? As a matter of fact, a portion of these chapters is a duplicate of the book of Joshua. Clearly, it's diving back into the past. So if you're having a hard time figuring out when they're doing what, join the crowd. All right. We're all having a hard time sorting this out. I studied this for hours and hours and days and days, and I'm still totally confused. I read the commentaries. They're confused. So it's hard to sort out. But the bottom line is this. The story is still accurate. The truth is still for us. After the death of Joshua, it begins. I would call that the subtitle of the book of Judges, because then we're going to jump into the past. The Israelites asked, or more properly, had asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites, meaning the general peoples in the promised land? The Lord answered and said, Judah is to go. Remember, he is the fourth born son, the kingly tribe, the tribe where the Messiah would come. This is Jesus's tribe. Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, meaning they had the same mom. Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. And we in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them, and when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men in the city of Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, the king of that locale, and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. 
Amen. I'm not hearing a lot of amens on that one. What's going on here? Gross. What? Stop. You can't cut off things. That's nasty. Let me explain why. Okay? This is not just a random memeing, which is kind of like, I don't know, cut out whatever sticks out. Okay. It's very specific. It is believed in that day and age that all the local kings and leaders led by military campaign, meaning if you were the king of that area, you led your people to war. You were a mighty warrior. That's what gained you respect. If you remove the thumbs, they can no longer carry a sword or draw a bow. Do you understand that? It completely removes their art of war. If you remove their big toes, there's no balance and they can no longer defend or run or back off. Therefore, effectively, they are removed from leadership for the rest of their lives. They are still alive. However, they can never be king again. That's all it is. It's a disfigurement for the purpose of removing them from war and to embarrass them. But it gets weirder. Then Adonai Bezek said 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Isn't that gross? You think about all the what dinner parties he had. You know, and there's all these kings under there. You're like, oh, what? my foot is kicking something. What? Ah, that's just one of those 70 crazy kings that are under my table. And then he looks down and he goes, don't feed that one. That one's just going to stare at you all night long. Don't even feed that one. And then this king has a moment of clarity. He says, now God has paid me back for what I did to them. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Speaking of Jerusalem, Judah is on a war path. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. And they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Now stop for a moment. If you look on the map, because I am, it has right here, Jerusalem's that little dot where apparently I can't hold still. See that little dot? That is actually in the yellow territory, which means it belongs to who? Benjamin. So why in the world is Judah attacking Jerusalem? Well, as a matter of fact, it goes back and forth in the Bible. Sometimes Benjamin tries to take it. Sometimes Judah tries to take it. It belongs to Benjamin. They end up failing in that regard. Here we go. Verse nine. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. What is the Negev? Very simple. This the desert region. That's it. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated three kings, Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, who's Caleb? We know this guy. He's older now, but we know him. Who, where do we know him from? When they were first going to go into the promised land, Moses sent out 12 spies. You remember one from every tribe. Ten of them came back with a bad report and said, there's no way we're ever going to take the land. But two were mighty and courageous and believed God. Those two were who? Joshua and Caleb. Because of that, Moses promised Caleb some territory. Caleb had taken advantage of that and was now doling that out to his family. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, making him his nephew took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. Assuming he granted her access, it says, when she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? And she replied, do me a special favor since you've given me land in the desert, the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. 
Is that significant to you and I? Nope, don't care. Is it significant to them? Yes, absolutely. When you live in the desert, you need to have a record of why you own that water. That's all it's recorded for. Verse 16, Judah continues on the rampage. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms, meaning Jericho, with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah, perhaps the Amalekites, in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron. Those are all Philistine cities you'll hear about in the story of Samson. Each a city with its territory. Now, what's interesting is they've had so much victory. Seems everything's going so easily. It's almost as if Joshua was leading this victory campaign and everything was going well. And then all of a sudden defeat comes knocking. The Lord was with the men of Judah. Do you see that? I want you to reconcile that with the next phrase. The Lord was with the men of Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. How is it possible that God was with them, yet they failed? I'm not going to give you that answer. I want you to dwell on that. And I want you to ask yourself this question. If you have Jesus, why is there still failure in your life? Is it his problem? Did he not do what he was supposed to do? Iron chariots, are they really too strong for God? I thought God was fighting for these people. Why are they still there? As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. Who's Anak? He was one of the fathers of the race of giant people. I know this sounds stupid. But do you remember Goliath, who was nine feet tall? It's believed that their races were kind of intermixed. The Anakites were the really, really, really tall, mighty people. And Caleb ran out three of them by himself. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Oops, we see failure. Whose problem is it? Now, the house of Joseph, meaning Ephraim, attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And when they sent a man to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spy saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, thinking of a plan similar to the one they used with Rahab at Jericho, Show us how to get into that city and we'll see that you are treated well. So he showed them and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. And now you'll see a total implosion of the people of Israel. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Let me ask you a question. How determined is your sin to remain? How determined is the enemy to keep a foothold in your life? Then I guess the question is, how determined are you to get them out? When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. How many of you have your sin under control where you have the lid shoved down and you know that every day it's pushing up against you, but you're keeping it down? I mean, you're not necessarily sinning every day, but boy, it's ready to boil over. Now I think you're getting the picture. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. 
Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Olive or Oxib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. And because, this, because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. That was a significant phrase. Did you see it? Now, not only is it not called Asher's land, but Asher has to go live among the enemies. Does sin, does sin have such a huge factor in your life that you merely coexist with it and it owns you? You just spend time with it. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Bethaneth. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Aneth became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. Stop. Did you hear what that said? The enemy told them where they could and could not go. Now I got a question for you. Do you have any sin in your life that embarrasses you or shames you into not telling anybody, not talking about it, not wanting to go to church, not wanting to go to a small group, not wanting to pray? Does the enemy tell you where you can and cannot go? Do you have weaknesses in your life where you can't even walk into certain locations without temptation? And so you actually have to literally avoid the whole area. Now you tell me who's in charge. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Harry's, Ahalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Israel, the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Now the question is very obvious. It is what? How did we go from absolute ultimate victory to complete and total failure and loss? God is about to answer that question. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Stop. You're about to see him apparently break the covenant. So how is that true? Let me tell you how a covenant works. A covenant is an I will, you will contract. If you violate your side, I'm no longer held under obligation. You understand that? God said, I'm never going to break it first. What was the contract? That he would get them in the land and be successful and fight for them and protect them at all costs. He was not going to break that first. But look what happens next. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. Wow. What happens when God's your problem? thought about that when he stops fighting for you is it possible that after you keep craving god give me my sin give me my sin give me my sin get out of my way that eventually he says okay is that possible and then he hands you over and allows you to walk as you wish and you turn around and can't find your way home 
And you cry out, God, why have you done this? He said, that's not the question. Why have you walked away from me? When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And they called that place Bochim, which means place of weeping. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So clearly they were sad. Clearly that they were upset. Clearly they thought they had done wrong. But the question remains, but would they change? Being sad and being different are two totally different things. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites. Oops, he's alive again. Now we're jumping back to the past and taking off where Joshua left. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land. Now we got a recap. Each to his own inheritance. And in answer to the question of how did we get to this low place, he says in verse 7, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harry's in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. In other words, things went really, really good for a while. And when Joshua walked before the people and he said, choose this day whom you will serve. As of me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But if serving God doesn't seem right to you, you pick your way. And all the Israelites said, no, we want Yahweh. We want God to be our God. And he said, I don't think you can do it. And they said, no, we really do want him. They said, all right, we'll see. For a while, they did walk. But after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, it says in verse 10, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Why? Why didn't they know? Was it just rebellious kids? Was it that the parents had done everything, but the kids just wouldn't walk in the ways of the Lord? Is that what happened? Or is it a complete abdication of parental leadership? Did they not pass it on? Were they too caught up in their own lives to pass it to their kids? I don't know. But somewhere along the line, they lost their way. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, which are the local gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. Listen to me. You ask me the question, how is it okay for God to wipe out all the Canaanites? Does he pick favorites? Does he grab Israel and say, you're my little righteous kids. You can go take whatever you want. Sure, go ahead. Go in there. Demolish people. Wipe them out. Hurt them as much as you want. I don't care about them. Is that how God works? Doesn't that seem to not fit with you? Doesn't that seem to not gel? Then what's the problem? Did you just read what I read? What did he just do to Israel? His own kids. He let them be raided, plundered, wiped out, resisted, 
And He defeated them Himself. Now I ask you, is it really that different what He just had Israel do to the Canaanites? No, He's been doing that to Israel for years. As a matter of fact, do you understand that God had been working with the Canaanites for centuries? Do you understand that the whole reason the Israelites were in bondage to Egypt for 400 years was because he wasn't done with the Amorite people? No, God just didn't pick and choose and allow his kids to run amok and start hurting people. God had talked with the Canaanites over and over and over. And in their rebellion, God used Israel as a judgment tool. Just like he had used the Canaanites as a judgment tool on Israel. So you ask, is it ethical? I guess you have to ask the bigger question. Is it okay for God to run the show? And then the final question that we have in our minds is, what will God do next? Will he leave us in our sin? Will he leave us in bondage? Will he leave us in oppression? Yes, we created our own sorrow, but is he hard-hearted? Yes, we've created our own chaos, our own drama. We've completely devastated our lives. Now we couldn't even get out if we tried. But is that the end of the story? Does God walk away? The answer is found in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. God has an answer. Now, judges are not the kind that sit in a courtroom and tell you right from wrong. These were merely deliverers. The only way they're called judges is because they exacted God's vengeance on people. That's it. They are not judges like you would think. They are merely, usually, charismatic leaders, both for good and bad. Samson almost appears to be a total loser. And yet, he's listed in the Hall of Faith. We don't have it all nailed down, but I can tell you this. They were ordinary people captured by an extraordinary God to do amazing deliverance. God raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they wouldn't listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them... He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Why would he have compassion? They did it. They did it themselves. It was their own stupid choices. They walked away from him. He had their injustice. He should have walked away. But what God do we serve? He revealed himself in Exodus to Moses by saying what? I'm a God of grace and mercy and compassion and love. Maintaining love to thousands upon thousands. Aren't you glad that our God doesn't give up on us when we make dumb mistakes and find ourselves in bad situations? Aren't you glad that he not only gives you second chances, but chances to the nth degree? Aren't you glad and aren't you thankful that God doesn't take stupid people like us and walk away? You guys, I wouldn't be in the ministry. I wouldn't be alive if he didn't. Do you understand that I am here by the grace of God? 
If I list my sins to you, I will surely be removed from ministry. If I list my sins to you, I will surely be condemned. But as I listed my sins to God, He raised up a deliverer and set my feet straight. And you know what I did in repayment out of my gratefulness and thanks? I went and found another sin to go get entrenched in. And He raised up a deliverer and set me free. And in my victory, I walked away. Are you any different? But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worship again. And they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. Do you understand or believe that God can use your sin to train you? Do you believe or see how God can use your failures and your weaknesses and your error and your flat-out rebellion as His tools? Sure He can. And sometimes He doesn't set you free because you need a reminder. Because the minute you get free, you run away. Please don't ask again why God does not free you completely from your bondage. Because if it was beneficial, He would. You can keep praying for it, because every day is a different day. But don't blame Him. And it finishes with this. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. You say, wow, how depressing. I mean, he left, them in, he left them in oppression. I can't believe it. He didn't cast them out. I thought that was the deal. I thought the deal was that he was going to fight all their battles and they just had to kind of kick back and float along on the raft. No, that wasn't the deal. Nor is that the deal with you. But do you see this land? 200 years after this story, or after the 330 years and then some odd time, whichever way you want to go. After hundreds of years, they get it all. And they are victorious. And the monarchy period extends their land beyond their wildest imagination. They do see victory eventually. But only when they go to God on His terms. Tom, would you bring the team up and close us out? Listen, as we close out, I want you to hear something. A little compromise today means a little bondage tomorrow. I understand when things get boring. I understand when you lose vision. I understand what it's like when being a pastor is just like every day and you stop remembering that a lot of people are hoping that you don't blow it. I know what it's like. To have the weight of the world on my shoulders and yet be completely clueless to it. And eventually just think that everything is about me. 
I know what it is to long for something, a little bit of junk food, a little bit of this, a little bit of sin, a little bit of that, and allowing that into my life and allowing it to capture hold. And I couldn't walk away if I tried. I know what it is to be a son of God and yet be in bondage. So listen to me. It's a lot harder to get it out than to get it in. And I just want to encourage you that we must stop the cycle and come to God on His terms. Because if there's any hope for the year of holiness, it's to run to God for who He is and what He's done. Amen?